Hello, everybody. My name is Rahim Jasani. Welcome to the Unfortunate Truth. Um, today, we're talking about uh, water conflicts in Africa. Um, more specifically, we're going to go into some regions. Um, and today with me, I have Professor Zaypour. Um, she is a professor here at Boston College um, and a very, very good professor of mine. Um, I was always interested in her and going to her office hours, and I hope you guys enjoy her conversation in this unfortunate truth version of an office hours. I may, I'm, I'm thinking about changing the segment's name, but uh, <laughs> Professor Snapor, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? You know, what your research is, who you are, what do you do? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on the show, Rahim. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so I am, I received my PhD in environmental policy and planning. Ooh, sorry about that. Um, in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT and did my dissertation on how the Nile countries have historically and currently negotiated their use of the Nile River. Um, so a lot of my research sort of looks at how we can use the principles of negotiation and mediation to make policy making, especially around natural resource management, more equitable, more sustainable, um, and more reflective of the needs of all the different stakeholders. That's awesome. So you are clearly qualified to talk about this subject. And this subject, um, obviously, the, the, the water crisis um, in those specific regions, um, we'll get into a second, is not something that a lot of people know. And that is exactly what this show covers. Um, so... What is exactly the problem uh, between Ethiopia, Egypt, any other related countries um, that, you know, that is related to some, you know, this dam and the Nile River um, and what is going on with it? Why is there this conflict? Where did this, you know, begin? Where, where is it now? That's a great question. So it started back in 2011. Um it was very soon after Egypt's revolution where Mubarak was pushed out. Um, a few months later, project documents on Ethiopia's side sort of leaked out into the public that Ethiopia was planning to build this huge hydroelectric dam on the Blue Nile River. So the Blue Nile River sort of starts in the highlands of Ethiopia, flows downstream into Sudan, and then meets the White Nile, which extends from Lake Victoria and goes up the Nile countries, the rest of the Nile countries. And then the White Nile and the Blue Nile to meet in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, and then flow through Egypt and then out into the Mediterranean. Um, the reason it was so controversial is that Egypt is 97% dependent on the Nile for its all of its water uses. Um, and so there is a huge sense of fear and panic from the Egyptian side of, hey, there is this dam that's being built upstream that could reduce the amount of water that we have available to us. Um, and although the prime minister of Ethiopia had extended sort of this, we will cooperate and this is a mutually beneficial project for all of us, Egypt was um, understandably kind of concerned about this dam. So Ethiopia announced the plans. Egypt initially was a little cautious about it, was cautious about how the plans, how um, 
structurally sound, I guess this, the dam would be. And then the three countries together created a group of experts to review the dam documents together. Anyways, fast forward a little bit. <clears throat> uh, the conflict sort of came to a head in 2013, where Morsi then um, sort of organized this, what was supposed to be a private roundtable on what to do about the dam. And some people had suggested bombing the dam. They didn't realize that this was televised. Obviously this turned into a huge international spectacle. Um, Morsi was soon after also ousted. Um, and since then, in 2015, the three new heads of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan, uh, they signed a declaration of principle saying that they would negotiate and cooperate on the dam. They have been negotiating ever since. It's now 2021, and there's still no agreement on how the dam will be filled and how it will be operated. Um, so they're still sort of in the process of negotiating and have reached out to different partners for mediation, but unsuccessfully so far. Yeah, so that's obviously a big crisis, um, and and um, it is weird that you know um, if you wanted to do something bad like that, it would be televised or recorded like that. So that's obviously a problem. But I mean, so I'm just a little confused as to what is the so Niall, you said you know makes sense for Egypt, and I think everybody in the audience understand. Like, if you think of Nile River, you think of Egypt. But so what? Why did even Ethiopia build this dam, you know, was it, so I've read at least, you know, this is somewhat a sense of national pride or like, you know, I don't know, if or even with Sudan, what is their incentive within this? Is it, you know, is it that big of a, is, is the, is, are they similar to Egypt? Is, is, are they really super dependent upon the Nile? Um, same thing with Ethiopia. Why, why did they build a dam in the first place? So those kind of what I know, we know Egypt's, you know, why they're in this, in this battle almost or right. in this conflict, but what about everybody else? So from Ethiopia's perspective, it has a lot more rainfall than its downstream neighbors, but the rainfall is extremely variable. Ethiopia also hasn't had the economic development that Egypt has had, right? And this is true of a lot of the Nile countries um, outside of Egypt and Sudan. So 40% of the Nile Basin lives under $1.25 per day. So a lot of these countries are sort of turning to different ways of economic development. Hydroelectric production is a great source of revenue generation um, that won't also contribute to emissions, right? And so Ethiopia's perspective is that they should be able to develop their water resources and grow economically. Um, their GDP per capita is about a third of what it is in Egypt, right? And they have historically dealt with droughts that have led to famines. Um, they still have a very large population that is living in poverty. Um, they have very limited connection to electricity. Um, like power consumption is about 23 times higher in Egypt than it is in Ethiopia. And so for all of these reasons, Ethiopia, this project specifically, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, right? Even in the name, you can sort of recognize the importance of this project. 
is to sort of lift Ethiopia out of poverty and lift it from everyone's minds as like this image of what we saw in the 80s of um, like children with distended stomachs because they were facing famine to becoming like a powerhouse for the Horn of Africa. So it is a huge source of pride for Ethiopia. Um, and they have very legitimate reasons for wanting to develop in this way. Some of the benefits are, so the, the dam itself is gonna be built very close to the border with Sudan, right? So they're not gonna use it for agricultural purposes. They're just gonna use it to generate electricity. Um, and the idea is that they can sell some of that electricity to their neighbors and they can also use it internally. It's beneficial for Sudan because it'll regularize the flow of the Nile. And so Sudan can increase its agricultural production. It can have more cropping seasons because the water becomes more um, regular throughout the year, right? So for Sudan's perspective, it helps with flood control. It helps with agricultural production. Um, it will reduce the amount of silt siltation. So that will help improve hydropower production even within Sudan. So Sudan stands to benefit a lot as well from the project. Did that help answer the question? No, it did. No, yeah, yeah I got a lot of notes on that. You're good. Um, that definitely did help. And I hope everybody listening, it, it, you know, it did help. Um, these things obviously can be uh, confusing, especially when you're learning it for the first time. Um, and I know I did, so it's okay. Um, but then, you know, let's go back to... Uh, we know kind of the conflict now. We know, hey, look, the, 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 now there's, a, there's a water conflict within our river. But then where does climate change play a role in this? Because I know it does. Um, but, you know, we know that, you know, for instance, right, Egypt is fully dependent upon the Nile. Um, what's happening specifically kind of to the Nile to make this conflict worse? As I think people should know, most of the problems that are related to climate change, climate change doesn't necessarily create, but exacerbate. I think right. that's a very fundamental difference that a lot of people need to understand. Um, and then, you know, has, has Nile done any other research on like other, you know, water source or is it just not like possible? Have I done research on other? The, the, sorry, the Egypt, I'm sorry. Egypt, uh, oh, has Egypt. Egypt looked into other water? Okay. Um, yeah, let me back it up just a little bit. So in the case of shared rivers, um, there are usually agreements between countries, right? In terms of how they'll use their water in the past, or sorry, how they'll use their water in general and how they'll share data and so on and so forth. Historically in the Nile River Basin, because it was colonized by the British and because the British had a huge stake in um, seeing Egypt succeed, one, because the British wanted access to the Suez Canal and two, because e the British started cotton production in Egypt and then later extended it into Sudan. A lot of the historical treaties, um, there's two specifically, 1929, 1959 Nile agreements, they sort of saved most of the water use for Egypt and Sudan, which are the most downstream countries. And so there's a sense of injustice within the Nile Basin countries who were excluded from this agreement, whose interests were excluded from this agreement. Ethiopia was never party to either treaty. Um, and so this represents sort of a opportunity to find a more equitable outcome for how they're gonna use their water. 
And this is true of river basins throughout the world, right? As climate change sort of makes our shared waters more variable and increases the uncertainty, we need more robust and flexible agreements um, that are equitable to everyone, that recognize that some people may have higher water needs than others at different points in time, and sort of encourage a spirit of cooperation that will prevent these countries from going to war with each other, has like dispute resolution mechanisms built into the agreement itself. Um, in the case of the Nile Basin, I, there, there's been limited sort of research on the impacts of climate change. There's a lot of uncertainty, I should say, of what the actual impacts on climate change will be on the river itself, um, except to say that it will increase the variability, most likely, of rainfall and flow and everything. Um, that said, one of the challenges that Egypt faces is that with sea level rise, it will have more saltwater intrusion. So more of the seawater is gonna get pushed up onto the Nile Delta. So most of the agricultural um, sector in Egypt is gonna be affected by sea level rise. And right now a quarter of the population is employed in agriculture, right? So what do you do with that quarter of the population when agriculture is no longer sort of viable as a livelihood? Then on top of that, you're asking Egyptians, you're saying, hey, you, you might face some food insecurity because of sea level rise and climate change, right? And the impact that it'll have on agriculture. On top of that, you are dependent on other countries for your water source, that's always been the case. But the other countries are also starting to develop their use of the water source, right? So it puts them in an extremely vulnerable position because all of a sudden their water and food security is dependent on them cooperating with their neighbors and their neighbors cooperating with them. Um, and I think this is going to be more and more the case, right? With climate change, it's gonna increase the pressure on a lot of countries and it'll become more important for these interdependencies to translate into cooperation rather than conflict. Um, in terms of Egypt, it has made uh, attempts to be more efficient with some of its water, but there are definitely, so it, it recycles quite a bit of its water in its agriculture, um, although it's hard to get the actual numbers. Uh, but there are quite a lot of improvements that can be made in terms of increasing the efficacy of its water use, increasing sort of the efficiency of its agricultural water systems in terms of, you know, switching to less water dependent or water intensive crops. All of these will take financing though. Um, and so Egypt needs support for that. Yeah, and that all makes sense. Um, and it's just, you know, I guess the unfortunate truth that you have Egypt who has to, you know, because of climate change and then the water conflict, they have to obviously go to the different sources that are not I, I thought i would assume they find different water sources but if they if they if it's that's very challenging then they just go to sources that don't require water and that's that's just horrible you know yeah. um but i mean well so one thing to note is that the the grand ethiopian renaissance dam it won't reduce the amount of water that's available to egypt i think it's more a sense of you know 
a very deep fear of being really dependent on your upstream neighbor that they won't ever shut off the tabs. Okay. So this is a, I mean, I don't mean to, uh, for the, for my audience, I'm thinking of, I mean, at least for my Indian Pakistan audience, I'm thinking of there's, there was dams built there as well. It's kind of a similar, uh, scenario where so you're saying that if this lets everything goes according to plan, Egypt will be dependent upon the, so they, they essentially will have to create good relations with Ethiopia all the time so that they don't shut off that dam essentially. Is that correct? Yes and no. That's their fear, but this is a hydroelectric dam, right? So the only way that it can generate electricity is to let water run through it. So there's really no incentive for Ethiopia to hold on to water. I think the concern is more, let's say that, you know, the great, the, that part of Africa is affected by a drought, a huge drought, right? And it is a very long, like a 10 year drought that will reduce the water that's upstream in Ethiopia. And they might decide that they wanna hold more water back for whatever reason to keep some minimum threshold level in the dam. Mm -hmm. And the, so I think it's more Egypt's fear of what happens in the case of extreme drought because Egypt also has the high Aswan dam which is also really important in hydroelectric production within Egypt. Um, so, Ultimately, the three countries, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, they have to negotiate a way to coordinate water flow through all three countries to maximize sort of the hydroelectric production in all three of them. Okay, so, okay, I understand. So I think the water would still flow down, but the question is, okay, if there is a drought or something that goes on. Yeah, um, it's sort of what do we do in extreme situations? It extremes, which which is which is a fair point, especially because food insecurity, as you said, it, um, could be a problem. Twenty five percent of Egypt's residents work in the agriculture sector. So that's right. obviously a problem. And then with climate change, if you add that, that doesn't make things worse. That's let less you know fresh water available. Yeah, I got that. Right. Down. So it's more right. So more of that seawater is going to get pushed onto land, which is going to make the land saltier. Right. You're going to have saltwater intrusion the salinity of the soil is going to increase. So that's going to reduce probably agricultural production in Egypt. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's obviously, that's a good kind of overview of like some of the misunderstandings of the problem. And like, obviously that's what, um, that's what I thought for a good second. And I'm happy you clarified that, but then, so let's, let's take it on to um, the United States for a second. Um, has the U.S. ever gone in? Because this has obviously been a scenario since, what, 2011, 2013, around that time. And so um, how has the U.S. ever gotten involved? Um, and, yeah, has have we ever mentioned it? We usually like to talk about other places as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, the U.S. has definitely been involved. So the U.S. and Egypt, one, have been um, historically have had pretty good relations, right? The U.S., at least in the recent history, has seen um, Egypt as a very important strategic partner in the Middle East. Um, the most recent thing, which I think you're alluding to, is that last year the U.S. tried to mediate the conflict between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan. For whatever reason, it wasn't the State Department that mediated. I, I'm actually not sure why um, the, tr the Treasury did. Uh, 
and it did not, it was not a successful mediation. Um, ultimately, Ethiopia felt that the US was not a neutral mediator. So the role of the mediator is to sort of help the process along and help ensure that each of the parties interests and concerns have been taken into consideration. And, you know, a, a trained mediator can do a really wonderful job in a negotiation to move it forward. In this case, and in any case where the mediator is not considered to be neutral, it can have the opposite effect. And in this case, um, at least Trump's United States was not considered to be a neutral mediator. Uh, especially because immediately after the negotiations, they cut a lot of state funding to Ethiopia, <clears throat> which had nothing to do with the dam. Um, and Trump's comments also sort of suggested that he favored the Egyptian position a lot more than the Ethiopian position. So again, you can't have a mediator that isn't trying to present things in a neutral way. <laughs> I mean, he is a businessman, so I mean, there is some <laughs> advantage to being a mediator. But yeah, you know, that's and that's and that's right, right? Even in things like again, a mediator is someone who mediates the situation, um, is a hopefully presents a non-biased, um, you know, non-prejudiced towards a specific region, group, people. Um, you know, we see them in, in in law cases all the time. They're like the third person who resolves disputes. Um, but again, you make a fair point that. If there isn't a country, you know, if there, and I don't, I don't, I don't, do you, do you, I mean, I don't think there, there, it's very difficult, especially in a very politicized world that, you know, has trade agreements to even have um, fair mediator um, because people have different resources and maybe someone wants a different resource. So you never really um, know. Because you've explained a lot about the, the crisis and the crisis is obviously very important. Um, but where, what is the, you know, what is the unfortunate truth about it? This is the million dollar question that I have to ask and um, will probably be the last question. Um, if there isn't, of course, something I don't understand, but what it would, and this is something that you can, you, you, this is, you can present I statements and, you know, not something that's too complicated, but this is something that in your you know experience and your research where it's like, you see this constantly over and over again, or the structural problem, these, you know, this is your, kind of personal take on the situation, but where, where, again, where does it, um, where does it constantly keep going? If, if I can lead you somewhere where it's like, this constantly happens and it ends up in the same result in that cycle. I'll give you an unfortunate truth followed by a fortunate truth. How's that? <laughs> All right. My unfortunate truth is that I think in some ways this, there the three countries' inability to reach negotiated agreement is reflective of a tendency that we're having globally to become more nationalistic, right? And to put our national interests ahead of our regional interests. Um, on one hand, it is a completely understandable position, right? It's a, it's a very human reaction when you feel like your security might be threatened to defend your interests even more. And so I think in the case of Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, 
this issue has been politicized so much that it is very difficult for any one of these three countries to make concessions in the negotiations without feeling like they're giving up some of their national interest. That's the unfortunate truth, which makes agreement very difficult to reach. Um, the fortunate truth is that there are a lot of young people who are seeing the world not through borders, but sort of through the global lens. And so there are young people all across the Nile that are looking for ways to connect with each other and to expand their identity, not as Egyptian, Ethiopian, or Sudanese, and so on and so forth, but as we are children of the Nile. And any of these really complex issues, whether it's trying to figure out the best way to use a shared water resource, whether it's trying to figure out how to address climate change, whether it's trying to reduce social, economic, racial inequality in the world, it needs to be through collective action. It needs to be through people working together. And so the fortunate truth is that young people seem to be much more wise than the older generation in this sense. And I think even with technology, right? Even the fact that you and I are having this conversation right now, I could be anywhere, you could be anywhere and we could still be having this conversation. I think this is also important in sort of building our collective identity and our collective commitment to addressing these global issues. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, we don't really talk about the fortunate truth, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, and 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 you and it's okay. Yeah, you are right though. Young people obviously are are taking initiative um, across the globe, whether it's in you know being in Egypt, in Nile, whether it's here in the states, whether it's in Europe. Young people are definitely uh, taking action, but the question is, uh, how much change will the older generation bring? Because they're still in power. <laughs> So unless the you know, next generation comes in and figure things, these things out, but that's a long way from now. So I'm still, you know, a lot of people in my generation, I'm just turning 20. So, you know, that. Um, but Professor Z, thank you so much for having, uh, thank you so much for being here and letting me talk to you. Um, I hope, I hope, <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, um, this episode will be out, uh, should be out soon. Um, and for those who don't know, Professor Z, again, is, is one of my former professors. Um, she is a great professor. Um, and the one thing I will tell everybody audience is that not, um, you know, this is a conflict that, again, is very difficult to understand. So if you need any research, we will provide you uh, with resources and links on our graphics that we'll make for this. You will see them soon. Um, and finally, just um, we will this episode after this episode comes out, we have another one coming out on August 27th, which is a national holiday, but we're still posting something on that day. Um, by national holiday, I mean it is my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and there's an episode coming out, and I hope you yeah, go to, <laughs> to climate change related episodes. But thank you so much, Professor C, for joining us, and have a nice day, everybody. Okay. Thanks.